verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here this morning. Uh, we are thankful that uh, your word is with us and you are present with us today. We pray, Lord, as your servant Brian comes to speak, that you will speak through him, and that our hearts and our minds will be open to what your word has to offer us today. Lord, we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing this morning on our study through uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And just as a summary, this, this small section of Scripture is packed full of amazing things in regards to the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul here, in few words, draws our attention to uh, a few things, and we'll just go over what we've seen so far. As we see there the first phrase, but when the fullness of time had come, Paul draws our attention to God the Father's divine plan. That it is His plan and His timing, and He is bringing it about. No one can stop Him. No one can thwart His plan. He does what He chooses. That it's God the Father's initiative to send forth the Son. The second phrase there, God sent forth His Son. Of His own choosing, of His own volition, God chose to give His Son to us so that we might know His salvation. The next phrase helps us understand the humanity and the humility of God's Son. It says God's Son was, as He had been sent by the Father, He was then born of woman. He was a truly a man. He was born in the same way we were born. Not conceived in the same way. Conceived supernaturally um, by the power of God. So that it was a virgin who had conceived and a virgin who had given birth. And yet... He was born of a woman. He was a human being. He humbled himself to become like his creation, to become like each one of us, to experience what we experience in life. He came not as a full-grown man ready to take on the world, but he came into the world in the same way we are, demonstrating his humility. He came as a baby dependent upon his mother and his father's care. We see the next phrase here, born under the law. Not only do we see His humanity in the fact that He took on flesh and blood, but He also placed Himself under God's law as a human being to live under that. And as we look throughout the Gospels and we look throughout the testimonies that are spoken of Jesus by eyewitnesses, each of them proclaim the same thing, that here was a man without sin who completely fulfilled the law of God perfectly in perfect obedience with Him. Which brings us to our phrase that we're going to look at today here in verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. That God the Son's mission is of redemption. It's of redeeming His people. Next week, we're going to take on the next phrase 
so that we might receive adoption as sons and understand God the Father's response to the redemption of His Son, the redemptive act of His Son in accepting all of those who have been redeemed by His Son as His children, as His people. And then the last week of this year, we'll look at the last verse, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God the Spirit coming to live in His people. In fact, it's, it's, it's amazing how much is packed into this, but it's also amazing to see the Trinity on display in this text. We believe in one God, one essence, who is represented in three persons, three distinct persons, unique, and yet all share in the essence of Godness. We see here God the Father, the one who sends, God the Son, the one who goes, and God the Spirit, the one who is given to His people to live within their hearts. And as we consider Christmas time, as we consider the advent of Jesus Christ, it is not just Jesus Christ at work, but the Trinity at work. And we can glory in our great and glorious God. As I said before, this is likely to be an early hymn or a creed that was used by the church. And so it's a blessing to be able to benefit from this here as we celebrate Advent. Today, my main point is this. The Advent of Jesus declares the redemption of the people of God. The Advent of Jesus declares the redemption of the people of God. And as I said, we're going to focus on the first half of verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. As we come to this text, we have to realize there are certain things we've got to answer in regards to an idea of redemption. As Paul quotes possibly this early hymn or this creed, he presents a need. He presents a need that each person is meant to feel and each person is meant to know that they have. The need for redemption. And so as we come to this text, we have to ask ourselves, what does redemption mean? What is the need that is seeking to be understood in light of this redemption? And how can we, how can we obtain this? Now the word redemption just means to cause the release or freedom from someone or something by means which proves costly to the individual that's doing the redeeming. I think of it as this in this way. So let's say, for instance, you, you had something of, of, of great value uh, to you. Maybe it's something you own in your house. Maybe it's, maybe it's a specific possession that you have. Maybe it's, it's uh, something that you cherish and love. Maybe it's a, a family uh, pet or something like that. I think back to my parents at one time boarded horses. And there were some specific horses that we didn't like very much. They... They like to bite, they like to kick, they, you know. And there are other horses that we just loved. And imagine that you owed a great debt, and therefore, in order to pay for that debt, you had to sell something that you greatly valued. Or maybe you could think of it as you had to pawn it. You had to give it up for a time to gain money to pay your debt. And that your hope was that in the future, at some point, when you're better stabilized when you had paid off your debts and you're able to earn back some money, you were able to buy that thing back. 
And so you sell it for a decent amount of money, and you get the money, and you're able to pay off your debts, and over the years you work really hard to buy it back. Maybe it's that favorite horse that I grew up with. And you're like, I'm finally able to go buy it back. And you go to buy it back, and the guy says, well, yeah, you can't have it for just the amount of money you paid me. Now he's worth twice as much. If you want him back, it's going to cost you twice as much money. All of a sudden now, if I gain back that which I desire, that which I want, it's going to be very costly for me as an individual. And that's the idea behind redemption. Redemption is something, you're gaining back something, you're buying back something, but it's costly to the one who buys it back. Ultimately, the desire is meant to secure the deliverance of something, to secure or liberate something, to bring it back into your own possession and the freedom of now having it. You know, if I were to have sold that horse, could I go to that place and ride it any time I wanted to? Do I have the freedom to enjoy and, and experience that? No, not at all. It's not mine anymore. I don't own it. I've had to give it up. But if I were to buy it back, then it would be mine. Then I would be able to experience the joy and freedom of it. I could go outside and feed it oats from my hand and feel its little whiskers tickle tickle the hand. Yeah. But without redemption, I would not. There's another term here that we should probably deal with right away, and that is under the law. As we talked about Jesus, we said that Jesus was born under the law. We're meant to understand not just His Jewishness from it, but the fact that He was meant to be the legal representative of all of humanity. That under the law of God, specifically, specifically um, um, described in the Mosaic Law, and we could think about specifically the Ten Commandments, and most of us know the Ten Commandments, or at least could name at least a few, like three or four or five, and shall not have any other God before you, or do not lie, or do not commit adultery, or do not murder. We know some of them, right? And God, uh, Jesus comes and places Himself under God's law, specifically as it's displayed in the Ten Commandments and in the Mosaic Law, so that He might be able to represent us perfectly. And He does, and He lives perfectly. But this says here that He came to redeem those who are under the law. If He's representing us by being under the law, what does that mean about us as well? That we are under the law. Now the specific Mosaic law was given to the Jews. But what we find as we read specifically Paul and Romans is that he describes everyone as under God's law. Not the law of Moses per se, but the law of God. In fact, when Jesus describes how, how is he's meant to describe the law in its entirety, the law in, in, in the most basic sense. Jesus says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's not just true of the Mosaic law and the Jewish law. It's true of God's law wherever it is shown. In fact, as Christians today, no, no longer Jewish, we're Christians and our faith is in Jesus Christ we no longer follow the Mosaic Law, but what do we hear from the very words of Jesus and the words of Paul as he 
faithfully gives us God's words. He says to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says to love our neighbor and so fulfill the law of God. That we are under the law. In fact, in Romans 5, he declares this to us. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now he's speaking specifically of the Mosaic law there. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now he's just talking about law in general. And he says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why is that important? Because death is the right punishment for sin. Death is the right punishment for sin. And even when the Mosaic Law wasn't in existence, guess what still happened? People died because of their sin. Because they were under the law of God. God's law said those who sin will surely die. In fact, we go back to the very beginning of time in Genesis. And that is what, and that is what God told told uh, to Adam. He said, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God commanded him. He gave him his law so that he might live under it. And so when we come here to this text and we read this, He came to redeem those under the law. It's, we're meant to understand He came to redeem all of us who are under God's law. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Everyone, for we are all under God's law and are all ultimately going to be judged for our sins. So as He says here, redeeming those under the law, notice He doesn't say redeeming those from the law because there's something else he's redeeming us from i've kind of already hinted at it but what are we being redeemed from we are being redeemed from our slavery to sin and the judgment the righteous judgment of the law because we are breakers of it that's what sin is Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breaking of God's law. And what we're told here in this text in Galatians is that Jesus has come to redeem those of us who are rightly under the law and have broken it, who are sinners. So my first point is this. God's people need redemption from sin. God's people need redemption from sin. We see this in the the theological definition of redemption. As we seek to define redemption broadly, it's the securing of deliverance or this, um, this release or freedom that is costly to someone else. But when we come to the Bible and we see its definition for uh, redemption, it's this way: Christ's saving work, viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin. Christ's saving work viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin. And so we can see that we are enslaved to sin. In fact, Paul emphasizes this here in Galatians 4, just a few verses before, in verse 3. 
He says here in verse 3, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. These elementary principles, which I understand to be sin, and we can see that later as we read in in verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Those whose slaves you want to be once more. In fact, it sounds very similar to Romans chapter 1, where it describes uh, all people as having the, the general revelation of God through nature. That by nature we can see the Godhead and know that He exists. And yet, what do we do? We rebel against Him. We deny His Godness. We turn away from Him. And we take for ourselves things that are not God's. We make for ourselves things out of wood and stone. We make for ourselves things out of pleasure and desire and greed and sex and power. We make for ourselves gods. One commentator said, Paul appears to be referring to the basic elements of the created order, the primordial powers at work in the world which fallen human beings turn into idols and worships as gods. And what are, what are those basic elements of the created order? Let me give you three. And I, I think he uses these three because for us, you know, most of us don't have a graven image that we're bowing down to. Don't have statues of stone or of wood that we're bowing down to. What does he say? Some that we struggle with, that we can understand what Paul is talking about is money and sex and power. And these elementary principles of the world are all around us all the time. We cannot avoid them. But more than that, they're incredibly powerful. So powerful, in fact, that sinful creatures like you and me are constantly tempted to turn them into idols and then worship them as God. That is our struggle. We are enslaved to sin. We go back to the Ten Commandments. How many of us have never lied? How many of us have never envied someone else's stuff? How many of us have never stolen anything? Even the smallest of things. Paperclip from your work. A little bit of time. You know, you're supposed to give them a certain amount of time at work, and yet, you know, you take a little bit for yourself. Like, how many of us have never stolen, never lied, never cheated? You know, we get to the big ones. Well, I've never murdered. Good. That's very good. I'm, I'm glad. Some people have. But here's the thing. Either way, whether you consider it big sin or small sin or whatever, you have broken the law of God. And as James writes, he says, if you break it in one, one part, if you break one little part of the law, you have broken it That in God's eyes, you are no longer a righteous person that happens to have done a little little white sin. Not a bad sin. No. He says you are a sinner who has broken the law of God. That's how God considers us. 
We are enslaved to this sin too because it has power over us. There's a desire in us to, to live in sin and we think it will please us. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden as, as God gave that command to Adam to, to eat of all other trees, but not this one. And Eve goes to that tree and the serpent is tempted and she looks at that fruit and she says, it looks good. It looks desirable. I want it. That is all of us in our enslavement to sin. We often maybe can recognize some of the evils of sin, but we don't often recognize our own desire to sin. Powerful sin has enslaved us. But not only are we enslaved to sin, we are enslaved to the judgment of sin. The righteous condemnation by the law. Now the law is good. The Bible declares the law as good. But it says the law cannot redeem us. The law is good for what it's meant to do, but it cannot redeem us. What does the law do? When Jesus came, and He came born under the law, what did the law do? The law confirmed that Jesus is the Son of God. He who kept the law perfectly. But when we are born under the law, and we all are, what does the law confirm of us? We're not the Son of God. We we didn't keep the law perfectly. What it affirms to us is that we have a desperate need of redemption because we are lawbreakers. We need. We need something to redeem us. For all have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged under the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He says there will be a judgment and all will stand. And some may say, I, have, I'm, I didn't know there was a law. I never knew there was a law. And the verse says, all who have sinned without the law will perish without it. It's not a good idea to claim ignorance. <laughs> what we're told is, Those who sin in their ignorance still perish for their sins. And those who have the law, those who have sinned under it, will be judged by it. We know it and will be judged by it. Now, the question is, so what should I do about that? Should I start trying to live under the law as best I can? Well, The law is good and it would be good to follow the law. But if you're trying to do it to make yourself right with God, it will not work. As I said in James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That when God comes to judge, God is not going to come and say, well, how good were you? Good enough? No, He's saying, my standard is keep the law perfectly. And then you're good with me. 
or fail in one point and you're guilty of all of it. You're guilty. See, we are enslaved not just to sin, but to the righteous judgments of our sin. We're enslaved to it. There is nothing we can do to work up enough good works to make up for the fact that we have failed by breaking the law. There's nothing we can do. It's not enough. There's not like a certain dollar amount, and if I just earn up to that, then I'll be good. You have to keep it perfectly. And in that, we see that there is some bad news for us. Because we can't. We just can't. The more we try, the more we move away from the only thing that truly can redeem us. And that's my second point. God's people need redemption to God. And the redemption to God only comes by the means God gives. Not by the means we want to make. Not by the ways we want to do it, but the ways that God commands. So before we, before we get to the means, let's, let me just ask this question. Why to God? Why do we need to be redeemed to God? Well, first of all, God is the good Creator. He is the One who made the earth and created man on it. It was His hands that stretched out the heavens. And He's the One who commands all their hosts. Or in Revelations 4, as, the, as the, uh, those around the throne of God are worshiping Him, they say, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. He is the good Creator. He is the One who has brought all this into existence. He is the One who has brought You into existence. As Your Creator, that gives Him some say, some authority. He's the one who made you. In fact, we could argue, and I think argue rightly, He knows you better than you know you. He knows me better than I know myself. Because He created me. Not only that, God is the authoritative lawgiver. We saw in Genesis 2, it was God who commanded the man on what he should do. But God's law continued through Noah and through Abraham and through Moses and the Ten Commandments. It continued through David, the great king, and continued through the prophets that we see in the Old Testament and ultimately continued up until Jesus Christ who did the will of His Father perfectly. And on through Jesus Christ, as Paul himself writes, that, that we do not live under the Mosaic law anymore, but we live under the law of Christ. That God continues to be the authoritative lawgiver and all humanity is called to submit and follow Him. Not only that, God is the righteous judge as we have already seen. God is the One who will judge those who are guilty. As Nahum writes, he says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. 
Or as Moses writes in Exodus to God's people, he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful God and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is a righteous judge. As slow as he often seems to be to judge because of his mercy, yet he will judge. Which leads us to God is the loving mercy giver. Oh, he is the righteous judge, but he is the mercy giver. As Paul writes in Romans 4, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How do we reconcile the righteous judge with the mercy giver? The one who reveals himself to Moses and to God's people as as the one of great mercy and yet will not let the guilty go unpunished. Paul answers that by writing, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? What He tells us here is this, that the way that the judge can also be the mercy giver is that He poured His justice out on His Son. And redemption means the buying back at the cost of of the one who is buying it. The one who is buying it. Jesus Christ, God's own Son, takes the cost, the punishment of our sins on Himself so that He might redeem for Himself a people. How do we then Accept this. How do, how do we gain this redemption? Paul says just a few verses earlier in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He writes here that we have been justified or been made right with God, having a right standing with God, our punishment having been paid for by the Son through faith. Faith is believing, this trust in what Jesus has done. We put our trust in Him. And by doing so, what does it say? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the creation of God, that which is God's, 
but that which rebelled against Him and went into sin. Jesus comes and He buys it back at the cost of His own life. He buys them back so that they might be God's children once more. And what is our response? In order to appropriate God's great gift for us in Jesus Christ, we are called to trust in Him. In Jesus. In His work for us. It is through Him, Jesus Christ, that we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace, this loving favor that God now gives to us. Oh, once once He looked at us as lawbreakers and, and, and His judgment was going to be cast upon us, we were enslaved to our sin and enslaved to the judgment of our sin and God was rightly going to judge us. But Jesus Christ comes. He takes the punishment and He moves us from, from lawbreakers to, to having His perfect righteousness in Christ. A right standing with God so that no longer do we have God's judgment upon us, but we have His grace, His loving Favor is now poured upon us, not because of anything we have done, because we have failed. We are lawbreakers because of what Jesus has done. He stands between us and God as the mediator. He stands between us and God as the redeemer and buys us back to God. And God only God only accepts the payment of His Son, Jesus. There's nothing else we can do to, make ourselves, to move ourselves from having broken the law to having kept it perfectly. There's nothing we can do. God the Father only accepts the payment of His Son. And the Gospel calls each of us to respond in repentance and faith, trusting that Jesus' redemption is all that we need to be made right with God the Father. It is all that we need. So my call to you is this. First of all, know this. Your sin will be judged. Everyone's sin will be judged. And apart from Jesus, every human being will suffer an eternity of punishment for their sin. They will only know God as the righteous judge. And He will only see them as lawbreakers. But God, in His loving mercy, sent His Son to redeem us. To redeem us under the law. To redeem us lawbreakers. In his, he didn't have to, but in His love He did. He sends Him so that we might not have to stay as lawbreakers and, and only know God as a righteous judge, but rather, I get ahead of myself, I always do, but next week we're going to look at this so that we might receive adoption of sons. We're going to look at that. He moves us out of this lawbreaker category into His family. We're sons. He has bought us back and redeemed us so that we might be with Him. Only in Jesus Will anyone find redemption from sin and judgment? Only there. There's no, know this. That's the only place. Don't fool yourself into thinking you can somehow earn it. You cannot know this. That the only place you can gain redemption is in Jesus 
Christ. So what would I call you to do? How would I call you to walk from this? Well, repent of your sins and trust Jesus. If you have not yet been justified by your faith in Jesus Christ, do so today. Trust in Him now. Today is the day of salvation. This opportunity lays in front of you. And the call is not to work for it. The call is to simply trust in the One who has done all of it for you. For those of you who have trusted, I would say give thanks. Give thanks that God the Father would provide a way of redemption. Sure, the Christmas time is, is wonderful and it's also very stressful. Don't allow all the things going on around, the world, around in your world right now to distract you from the glorious grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. And give thanks. When you celebrate that little baby in a manger, give thanks that he grows into a man that is willing to die for you. Give thanks. Exalt Jesus today. I mean, that's what I want to leave you with. Exalt Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You for the great gift that He is to us. Lord, I pray that we would not minimize Him in any way in the work that He has done. Lord, we are lawbreakers, undeserving of such mercy and such grace that is shown in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and in His death. Lord, we deserve to die, and yet He has taken that death upon Himself for us. Let us, let us, not, let us not forget this great loving act that He has done. Let us, let us not take it for granted in any way. Let us not let the, the struggles of this world distract us from the joy and thankfulness that we should show for the work that Your Son has done for us. Lord, we are great sinners. But we have a greater Savior in Your Son, Jesus Christ. So we thank You for Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.